welcome back to the bookcase. It is the first Thursday of the month, so we are going to partake in what I hope would be a relatively long tradition of exploring the genre of horror. And so with that, I'm going to introduce myself, who's the horror enthusiast. I am Kate Gibson, and I'll introduce my last horror enthusiastic co-host. And I am Charlie Gibson, Kate's father and less enthusiastic co-host. This comes from a suggestion from the people at ABC Audio who underwrite this podcast. And they said, pick a genre and let's explore a genre of books that perhaps we would not otherwise be hearing about. And Kate's first suggestion to my horror <laughs> was horror. And she said, Dad, don't don't put your nose up to it. It's there's good writing going on in this area. It's what made me a reader. Well, Stephen King made her a reader. And Stephen King, I guess, writes books. I've read many of his books that are what I would call good horror. I've read some that's bad. And there's a fine line, I think, between what's acceptable and what's not. But Kate, why is it that you are so enthused about the genre? You know, when we talked to Dave Barry a few weeks ago, he talked about humor writing. And I think in some ways, horror and humor writing are two different faces of the same coin. They're designed to elicit an emotional reaction from you in order to sort of give you a catharsis of emotion. Really good horror sort of puts you in a place of dread. And at the end, you sort of go, and it feels, I don't know, not good, but you know, there's some glee that you can take from that catharsis. And I think that's what really good horror writers do. I love Stephen King. I think he explores some incredibly important themes with his work. I not only will read anything that he's ever written, but I will read anything that he blurbs. So if you see his name on the cover and he's very good about blurbing for other writers, specifically in the genre, if he says this scared me, I'll buy it like that. And he's very, like, as I say, so he's introduced me to all these other writers that I love, including the writer that we're going to talk to this week, whose name is Christopher Golden, who's somewhat of a godfather in the genre. And these guys are really talented. And Christopher talks about the fact that this is really hard because it's not like a horror movie. You can't rely on music. You can't rely on lighting. You can't rely on gory makeup. Everything that happens has to happen on the page. And these guys show an amazing amount of talent, I think, putting you in the place of dread as you read it. Okay. 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 <laughs> so, so I know you get enthused, but tell me, because there's a lot of hacks who are writing this kind of stuff and tell me what goes too far for you. What is not acceptable in your mind in a horror novel that makes it just yuck? as opposed to something that's going to draw you in. And I, I acknowledge, I've, I've, you've got me reading Golden. He's a very good writer. But what, to your mind, goes too far that is not acceptable? There are two things. One, I do think that for me, and again, acceptable, I think, is a um, is something that you use with sort of um, bunny ears in this genre. There are people who find things acceptable that I don't find acceptable. I, for instance, cannot do, there's a very large genre right now of what I call torture porn, which is let's tie somebody down and see all the horrible things that we can do to them before they die. I don't do that. That to me is a snuff movie and it's gross and I'm not quite sure why you're taking me on that journey. And I don't do that. I guess the difference for me is if you're going to pop out from behind a hedge and you're going to gouge somebody's eyes out, you know, I want the focus to be on the popping out behind the hedge, not the gouging out of the eyes. If that's the best way I can explain well, it, I think. <laughs> well, you, you can you can do a pop out from behind the hedge without without gouging out eyes. But I think Ararat, which is the first Christopher Golden novel that you had me read, is a good example. It starts as a search for Noah's Ark. 
on Mount Ararat and starts with the premise that it's been covered over, that that's where Noah's Ark was destroyed, hitting the mountain, and that it's been covered over by silt and whatever and earthquakes and and snow. And then there's an occurrence that uncovers it. And so people are exploring it. Archaeologists are up looking for it. I was all into that. And I thought it was a good device. Then it turns out there was a demon involved in the wreckage of the Ark. And that demon begins to take over the story. And I had some trouble with some of it, but I did think it was very well written. And I was intrigued and I stayed with it right to the end. And we're going to talk to Christopher at some length because I think he is a very good explainer of why horror novels have such appeal to people. I quibble with calling it horror. You suggested to me it should be called dark fiction, and I think that's better. And Christopher talks about that because horror is a word that's off-putting to me. One of the things I love about Ararat that I think is so great is, and again, this is part of the glee that horror fans take. You know, you're up on the mountain, they're looking for the ark. It's kind of spooky. And horror fans are going, where's the monster? Where's the monster? What's going to come get them? What's going to come get them? And so when they stumble on the box and they're like, ooh, a demon, you know, as a horror fan, I'm going, yes, a demon, because <laughs> I've been waiting for it for the first 40 pages of the arc exploration when he's done such a fantastic job of creating the atmosphere. That's part of the glee that you take is where's the demon? And so, I, you know, it's, it's always sort of a promise fulfilled. I loved this conversation with Christopher Golden, who's written everything from fanfic to standalone horror to short stories to editing anthologies. He's a godfather in this industry, and I loved having a correspondence with him. He's super smart, and he knows everybody, and I was really excited to talk to him. So here we are, our conversation with Christopher Golden. Christopher Golden, it is great to have you in the bookcase This really touches off a a series of podcasts that we're going to do on the genre of horror. But tell me what in your mind constitutes a novel that can have the appellation of horror. You know, famed horror historian and also writer in his own right, Douglas E. Winter, once sort of famously said, horror is not a genre, it's an emotion. Mm -hmm. And so for me... Horror can be so many different things, but it's about the way that we make you feel. And to me, weirdly, I always have felt that horror maybe is the wrong word, Mm. but you can't put dread on the category title of a book because that to me is what we're doing more is we're unsettling people. And we'll get into the whole subject because to me, horror and comedy are very close siblings. Hmm. When you take the word entertainment away from horror, Mm -hmm. it becomes this horribly negative, a devastating, traumatic thing. So what I'm wondering is, what is it about horror entertainment when it is in some ways the worst of humanity and the worst of darkness? What is it that gives us so much glee? Why is it so much fun? I feel like over the years, I have developed a different perspective on why horror works so well. Firstly, I said it was like comedy, and it is like comedy in the sense that it creates an elevated emotional state in you, and the experience of going through it is cathartic. When you are done, and studies have shown that the physical response to watching a horror movie or reading a horror story is similar to the response of seeing something really funny, because when you're done, you exhale, you come down from that catharsis. So it does provide that. But I also feel like horror is a genre unlike any other in which you can encapsulate any other genre. Any other kind of story can also be a horror story. And in that process, you can talk about things that are not comfortable being discussed in other areas. 
Mm. I am 55. I lost my mom two years ago. My dad died when I was 19. My father-in-law is 96 years old. My mother-in-law is 85. And I think that I have found it very strange that their generation, at least in my experience, seems to not really be comfortable with the topic of death, what happens, what we're supposed to do about dealing with their passing, all that stuff, in, in my limited experience. And I think that horror just gives us a place to talk about what we believe in, what we care about, what frightens us, because so much of the time we're avoiding the topic of what we're scared of. Mm. So when does it cross a line? For instance, when does a book that is basically science fiction cross the line into horror? When does a book that is fantasy cross the line into horror or mystery into horror or even what you would call just regular old everyday run-of-the-mill fiction? turn in right. to horror. What is the tripwire? I think it's an error to imagine that it has to be one or the other. I think very frequently, and again, the best example that everybody is familiar with, of course, is to turn to film, which is Alien. Alien is a, basically, it's a big old haunted house movie, but it's also a science fiction film. And I think really it's, if the supernatural is involved, it can be called a horror novel, even though not every novel that has the supernatural in it is also a horror novel. And I think it's also about intent. Is the author intending to unsettle you? And I wouldn't necessarily say scare you because I've written a lot of, and I've written other genres, but most of what I've written is horror. And there are books that I've written that my intent is not necessarily to scare you. It's to take you on a ride. Mm. It's to make you think about certain things. Mm -hmm. It's to give you that feeling of dread and that sense of relief or not. I mean, you rarely give your audience a quote unquote happy ending. Like there may be closure, but there's always a hmm at the end. I mean, do you feel like that's part of your mission as a writer to say, let's get comfortable, but not too comfortable? I think in short stories, you can skimp on happy endings completely, mm. right? Because they have people haven't invested as much time in the story. So I feel like in a novel, you sort of owe the audience, I feel, not all writers feel this way, but I feel that you owe the audience a little bit of relief. But from my perspective, victory in life, in real life, costs something. You never get out of anything unscathed. Mm. And so if you've been through this horrible thing in one of my novels, and you get out of it with a completely happy ending, it feels cheap to me. It feels, <laughs> uh, it feels like old uh, serials from the 1930s where you'd see a character <laughs> ride a motorcycle off a cliff and then in the next installment you see that the character dove off the motorcycle before going off the cliff which, which did not happen <laughs> but now they're showing that it did and I just feel like that's devalues the experience of reading the story of going on this emotional ride with these characters because you know I don't know about the two of you but we don't get out of this there are no wins without some losses. You said something really interesting earlier. You said maybe horror isn't the right word. Just in the last half hour, I looked up in a thesaurus. Horror, dreadfulness, atrocity, gruesomeness, viciousness, depravity. All of those words make me go. And Katie said to me, why don't they call it dark fiction? I gave the keynote speech at the British Fantasy Convention a number of years ago, and I talked about the difference between American and British horror. The Brits have a much deeper respect for the genre than Americans do in general. And I think the reason for that is because people who are not familiar with reading a lot of horror fiction, mostly when they think of horror, they think of Jason. They think of Freddy Krueger. Mm -hmm. They think of other things like that. And again, backing up, in the 1980s, horror was huge. 
And Stephen King was really the reason for that. But then we had Peter Straub and Clive Barker and these excellent writers who came in. But what publishers did is what they always do. They found the hot thing and they decided, well, we need to publish hundreds of these, no matter how (laughs) they might be. Pardon my (laughs) And so people who were reading a lot of horror started to think, maybe I don't like this genre as much as I thought I did. Not because of the genre, but because they were picking up books that were just pumped out there by all of these certain publishers who were trying to take advantage of the hotness of the moment. And it crashed horror for 30 years. I mean, Mm. horror went underground, more or less. And many horror writers were writing in other genres and all the stuff for for decades. And the same thing happened in film. But over the last 15 years or so, especially, we have seen one after another really interesting thoughtful, frightening, avant-garde, different kinds of horror movies happen in the United States. And I think that is partially responsible for the resurgence of interest in horror fiction. That's interesting because I think of horror entertainment almost as split into two different things these days. I think of as the horror that I know and love. And then there's what I think of as sort of fictional snuff, Mm. which is like, how many ways can I hurt you if I tie you down? That to me is not horror. And it brings up an interesting question, though, about the role of gore in horror literature and in horror film. Because when I said to my father, read Ararat, you're going to love it. Ararat being one of your most famous works. It's not terribly gory. And my father called me up and said, this isn't gory. What are you talking about? Look at all the ways these people die. And I said, but there's a difference. Because for me, gore is somebody's eyes get couched out. And I'm going to explain what that looks like for five pages. Or somebody's eyes going to get couched out and it's going to take a paragraph. I mean, is that a conscious choice that horror authors have to make? How much to include and how much is too much? I think it depends on what you are going for. Also, what you like yourself as a reader. You know, it, it informs what you like as a writer. And, you know, I've written things that are really gory. I've written things that have no gore at all, but it's never my goal. But that's no, not meant to be disrespectful in any way to the writers for whom that is something that they're specifically going for, that that's a kind of story that they want to tell. It's not for me even in the in the films. I mean, I've watched incredibly gory movies, but that's not why I've watched them. And the movies that are borderline snuff are not appealing to me in any way. I'm not mm-hmm. interested in watching that because to me, the best horror is about processing our humanity, whereas that is processing to me inhumanity. Mm-hmm. It's a different approach and it's not of interest to me. Well, Ararat is an interesting example in the conversations that Kate and I had about it. There are far fewer characters at the end of the book than there were at the beginning. Characteristic of horror books is... Many of uh, them have disappeared and some of them have disappeared <laughs> in not very appetizing ways. But it started, I thought, for the first half, people looking for Noah's Ark and where it landed. And I was really into that. And I thought, boy, this is really interesting. And then all of a sudden a demon was unleashed. And all of a sudden I got uncomfortable. <laughs> you you made a transition there and you had me thinking, oh, how do you build that sense of foreboding in a novel? I think there are so many different ways to do it. And I think that for me, the best way to do it is delicately. There's a moment (laughs) relatively early on in the book where you're inside the cave that is the ark, but you're inside the ark. And the archaeologists who are working on it note that there are cadavers 
and it seems like there are marks on the wall. It seems like they were trying to get out. And it's a minor detail, but things like that work on your conscious or subconscious to basically say, okay, this is not a safe place. We are not safe here. Mm-hmm. But the other thing in the book that was really important to me is that the idea of the existence of the ark is a talking point for mm-hmm. all of the different people and their approach and belief systems. Mm. And horror is largely about that too, because I feel like any story that involves the supernatural is causing you to spend some time, again, either consciously or unconsciously, thinking about what you believe in, what, whether, what, whether you believe in that we have a soul, whether you believe in all these things. And that stuff is part of, even if authors are not trying to talk about it, supernatural stories are de facto about that. And it is always a, something to spend some time thinking about. Mm. I ran across an article in my research about arcologists and There are people out there right now who still, even though Mount Ararat has been picked over for decades (laughs) and decades and decades, there are still people who think the Ark is there. It's like, it's not there. Never mind the fact, the question of whether it ever existed to begin with, which we could talk about, but clearly it's not there, but these people believe it's there. And so I thought, well, but they keep going back. And And so I started to look up avalanches on Mount Ararat. And there is at least one, well, there have been a number of earthquakes there and, and avalanches, but there's at least one really famous one, big one. And I thought, well, what if, what if that happened once upon a time and covered the ark and now another one comes and uncovers the ark? And I thought, well, that's interesting, but even that's not enough for me. But in the sort of apocryphal gospels, the things that were written prior to, but never included in the Bible, there are stories about Noah and demons. And there are stories about this one demon, Shamdum, who did not, you know, obviously Noah had to sort of prevent the demons from getting on the ark. These are ancient tales. And I thought, well, what if one of them did? I wonder if you ascribe to something that one of my favorite authors, John Irving, one of my said to me once, something of a friend. And he said, you have to, right at the beginning, put out a character that interests you, A, and that you're worried about, that something may happen to The best example he ever gave me was the mayor of Casterbridge, the Thomas Hardy novel, where a sailor gambles away his wife in the first chapter. Mm. And as John said, you know, that's not going to end well. And I wonder if that's something that you feel as well, that though you don't have to get into the horror aspects of it until the novel has built some right away, you want the reader to know there's evil lurking here. I also feel, first of all, full stop. John Irving is also one of my favorite novelists, and A Prayer for Owen Meany has been tied with The Stand by Stephen King as my favorite novel for decades. And just below that is Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. Mm. So the other thing about horror is that it is the catalyst, right? So every single person that we know has something going on in their lives that is worrisome that could be a crisis under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances. And the supernatural for me is almost always this thing that I'm introducing that is going to trigger that crisis. It's going to bring everything to a head. And so in a novel like Ararat, for me, we have this couple, Adam and Miriam, who have all kinds of things going on in their lives. And they seem incredibly happy together, but they're planning their wedding. And Adam doesn't understand why Miriam keeps dragging her heels about planning the wedding, but there's clearly something that she's not telling him and it's something not good. And so that's a quiet 
thing, mm. but mm. it's it's what we learn the moment we meet them. And hopefully you read about them and you like them, but you're, you know, even if you know it's a horror novel, you're thinking what's going on with them and I hope they're okay. And it occurs to me that what you do in terms of unsettling people or scaring is harder because you have to do it simply with words. In a movie, you have visuals, you have music, you have a setting where in the old days, people were in theaters. They were out of their comfort zone. Right. In reading, they're sitting in their living room and all you have is words. Yeah. Is it harder to do what you do than the movie people do? And how much harder? How do you do it? Well, I started to say this before, and I have to I have to say, I know I'm not I know a lot of other authors are not like this, but I almost never set out to scare. Hmm. Sometimes I do, because the story is more important to me. That unsettling moment is more important. But I feel like if you can get the reader to feel connected, identify with your character, and you put the character in a situation that is that the reader can imagine as supremely uncomfortable. If I can get somebody to feel frightened, if I can get somebody to feel unsafe or feel dread while reading a book, that's such a huge accomplishment. And even better than that is I've had people tell me that they cried. And to me, getting a reader to cry, just reading words on a page, one of the greatest compliments you can ever give a writer is to cry over something they wrote. Well, you and I have been emailing for some time because I've been asking yeah. for advice on how to get this up and running. And I love too that like, I'm like, oh, you know, and I would love to talk to Josh Mallerman and I would love to talk to Jennifer McMahon. And you're like, oh, you want their addresses? I have that. So I'm fascinated. Like are horror authors a tight knit community? I would love to talk a little bit about the horror community because it's more than one beast, obviously. There's an independent horror community of independent writers and publishers and all that. And we're all part of one umbrella, you know, the horror community is incredibly supportive. And most of the horror community is also hugely progressive, which you would not necessarily imagine. What I find is that I talked to my agent who has been in this business for longer than I've been writing for sure. He's been doing it for 40 plus years, I think. And he represents all kinds of writers, literary writers, genre writers, historical, whatever it might be. And he always says that of all of his authors, that the horror authors are the kindest mm. and that they give you the shirt off their back. And I think it's because for so long <laughs> we've been underdogs and I think horror writers are largely misunderstood. Mm. But I also think it's because mm. writing horror is even, you know, writing is therapy, but writing horror is real therapy. <laughs> and uh, and I think so many of us are working through some stuff, but I think horror is quick on the draw to stand up for people who've been hurt. And I think, a lot of horror people have been. There's a song by a band called Over the Rhine that I quote all the time. The song is called All My Favorite People Are Broken. I think that's true of most of us in one way or another. But I think in horror, you have a lot of people who've been through some stuff, are in the process of self-repair. How many of you guys got into the genre because of King? And what is it like living in a genre that is dominated by such a prolific writer who publishes so much stuff? <laughs> you know, the thing is, Stephen King, I have said many times, is the narrative voice of my youth. <laughs> like, like when I think about my childhood, it's like scenes from Stand By Me with Richard Dreyfuss mm. narrating them in the background, all in Stephen <laughs> King's voice, <laughs> because that's growing up. And I think that having Stephen King as our 
sometimes unwitting and sometimes unwilling standard bearer (laughs) is a massive blessing. I mean, can you imagine as far as setting the example for the rest of us on how to treat other writers, younger writers who are coming up, how to support other writers? Mm. What could you have better than Stephen King? He's out there every single day championing other writers. He's he's done it for me several times, and I'm forever grateful. He is the only writer that I will not just read everything that he's written, but I also will read everything that he blurbs. Like, you know, if (laughs) if he says, this scared me, it goes in my cart, period. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I have to say, that was the best thing. You know, and I'll say, like, the first time he blurbed me was for Wildwood Road, which I've mentioned a couple times. And then he blurred me on Snowblind and he blurred me on Road of Bones. When he blurred me on Wildwood Road, I was sitting at this desk and my phone rang and he said, hey, Chris, it's Steve King calling. And I honestly, no joke, almost said because <laughs> I, assumed, I assumed for a moment that it was one of my friends just messing with me. And I was like, and then I it clicked in and I remembered, oh, wait, you know, like I did send his office his manuscript, <laughs> but I never thought he would actually read it. Um, and uh, so I fortunately did not react that way. And he was on his way to a Red Sox game and he was calling to say that he was halfway through the book and loving it and that he was going to blurb it. And it was just like the greatest oh. thing, was like, you know, every Christmas and every birthday I've ever had all combined into one 30 second. You did. You turned to your wife and you said, you know what? Marrying you was nice and meeting my kids was, was yeah. okay too. But yeah. like, this was kind of better. Yeah. 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 I want to ask you one final question before we get to the rapid fire, sure. because in some ways I think you are a horror writer after my own heart, because I live in Minnesota, snow blind, the road of bones, Ararat, All books where the cold is a character. Where did you live that was freezing? What did it do to you? (laughs) So, I mean, ironically, those are my three most popular books. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know. And I said to both my agent and my editor, because they were like, well, you can keep doing this. And I'm like, I can't have every (laughs) single book be like, and because it's been a coincidence up until now. I was born and raised in Massachusetts. I I remember the blizzard of 1978 with extraordinary fondness. Um, (laughs) If you were an adult at that time, it was probably terrible. But for a kid who was at that time 11 or 10 years old, I guess, in the the winter of that, it was the greatest thing ever. (laughs) And I also noticed as I got older, temperatures that didn't feel cold when I was a kid felt freezing cold. I've been to Canada. I've spent time in northern New England and Vermont and Maine and all that stuff. And it isn't necessarily just cold. It's cold without shelter. Yes. You know, I mean, when you're not, you think that's the fascinating thing about the road of bones is, you know, you're fine on the road of bones if you're in a car Mm -hmm. running, but if the car runs out of gas or breaks down and nobody comes along, you'll die if it's the winter time there. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the real, the cool part of it, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I love doing that. And I like, again, this is about what we're talking about, about feeling dread that we were discussing earlier, right? I mean, I want you to feel worried about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a genre which Kate has brought me into cautiously, and you have certainly greased the skids as well, making me more curious about it. And we will be doing other podcasts about it. One of the reasons that the horror sections now in bookstores are as large as they are is because Christopher Golden is as prolific as he is. And there are many of his books in that section. And 
intriguing books, I must say, even as somebody who is, as I say, cautious about the genre. (laughs) Christopher Golden, thank you very much for being with us. It's been a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. All the best. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Oh, this is so fun. This is so fun. Okay. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Our rapid-fire questions for Christopher Golden. Have you ever had an idea for a book and you thought, no, no, this is just too dark. I can't write it. No. (laughs) (laughs) I've had ideas for books that seem too sad, but then I find a way to make them, you know, to go along with them, to make them more interesting. So I've read that your favorite books vacillate between The Stand, A Prayer for Owen Meany, and Lonesome Dove. And I want you to sort of tell me why those three books are worth reading. The thing that all three of those books have in common, weirdly, is that they're books about what it means to be human, Mm. which to me is what the horror genre is best at, Mm. filled with characters and experiences that illustrate the strain of being human and the beauty of being human simultaneously. All three of them. I mean, I just, you know, a prayer for Owen Meany tears your heart out. And you, you've, no matter how irritating Owen might be, there's so much heart in that story, so much desire for the best things. We all have this desire for the best things our lives can be for us, for the best relationships with family, for the best relationships with friends the things that will be the most rewarding in life. There's a song called Don't Let Start that has the line, no one in this world ever gets what they want, and that is beautiful. (laughs) And that's the struggle of being human. And those three books are so much about that, about 
the search for those things we can hold on to. Scariest book you have ever read? The scariest book I've ever read is probably a tie between Salem's Lot by Stephen King and a novel that far fewer people have read by legendary British horror writer Ramsey Campbell. And it's called The Grin of the Dark. And as an adult, it's the only novel I've read in adulthood that freaked me out. Whoa. It unsettled me. Whoa. It really got under my skin. Yeah. Ooh, I look forward to this. And it's not gory at all. Scariest movie you've ever seen. The scariest movie I've ever seen as an adult is probably The Descent, directed by Neil Marshall. And you should definitely watch it if you haven't seen it. And the other is a tiny little movie called The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which is a two-hander. It's just two characters, a father and son who are morticians doing a, a late night autopsy. And I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. It's a, it's a terrifically unsettling movie. Did you ever see Audition? Yeah. I wasn't scared by Audition. I was troubled by it. No, but it was the most off-putting. When they do the AMC scariest movies of all time, they used to do that every year. And number five was always Audition. And Rob Zombie, who's a very disturbing director, comes on and he goes, Audition. Wow. I don't even know what to say. So, of course, I ran out and I rented it. Yeah, it's a different kind of horror, right? It made me question my humanity. You know, the thing is, I'm always looking, I'm looking to be unsettled. I mean, this is what I, you know, I'm looking to feel. Charles DeLint, one of my favorite authors, a, a fantasy writer from Canada, extraordinary guy, talked about a novel of mine called The Ferryman, and he referred to it as, you know, I lure you in, and then I make the ground feel unsteady under your feet. And yeah, that's what I want, both to give you as a writer, but also when I read... Uh, what I'm looking for in a great horror story is to have that feeling. The ground is no longer sturdy underfoot, you know, like what's what could possibly happen now. So that's the autopsy of Jane Doe and the descent are both examples of that. The story that you want to write, know you should write, but haven't been able to get your hands around yet. I'm so glad you asked this question. It's actually a historical thriller. And I won't, I'm not going to share the title or give you, but it's a, it's a historical thriller set in 1901 that I've been wanting to write for like 20 years. But of course, because I'm a horror writer and that genre is not screaming for more people to do it, you know, Caleb Carr and, you know, all that. But I have this book that I've been wanting to do for 20 years and I just, I need to. So once I have a little quiet, you know, a little financial security enough to be able to just write it <laughs> on spec, I, I will write it someday. Is it harder to join a conversation like Buffy and Hellboy or to write something original? Well, it's completely different, mm. right? They're both difficult in their own way. Just like collaborating with somebody is a very different experience than doing it yourself. It's definitely harder to write your own book, mm. but it's also more rewarding. I always say, look, I've done a lot of media tie-in work and I've done screenplays and all that stuff. And I always feel like if I didn't do those things that I'm passionate about, it would be a betrayal of the kid who got me here. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was the kid who would have gone crazy to be able to have access to those things. And I'm never going to turn my back on that kid because I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in and able to do these things if not for him. It's a question we stole from Stephen Colbert, but we always think it's illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? On the beach with family. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. As I said, Kate, I think he's a very good advocate for the genre. I'll keep an open mind. How about that? Uh, and I hope our li I, I hope our listeners will as well. 
You've got me reading more, and we're going to have some authors who are very much involved in the genre. So I don't know. But as I say, you've got me intrigued. I'm really excited I have you intrigued. You being intrigued by this is quite an accomplishment. I feel like I've done something huge by having this conversation first. I'm really excited about it. And we're going to have more. There are lots of great authors in this genre. There are intellectuals who study this genre. I'm a huge fan. I can't wait to talk to them. I mean, when I said to Christopher, I'm like, oh, I'd love to talk to Josh Mallerman. And he said, do you want his phone number? I went, I just get really excited by these people and by their talent and by the incredible stories they come up with in their heads. So I can't wait to do more. I was interested that he said that many of these authors are working through something, mm. Mm. that that has brought them to the genre. That's interesting. And I, I, I don't know how much they'll be willing to talk about that, but maybe maybe that's a future subject to explore. Yeah. Anyway, bring you up to date on the people who uh, make this podcast possible. And then we have a coda, a finishing thought from Christopher Golden. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. I guess I would say the most beautiful thing about a horror story is that the people who love the hardest and have the most to lose are the people who will love it the best. The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com, because everybody needs a girlfriend.